Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the rule of law and the Supreme Court. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover some of those things at Slate. And we are back on the SCOTUS beat this week, looking ahead to a case that is keeping us up at night. Next week, the court's going to hear arguments in a crucially important follow-on to that big gun case, Bruin, from two terms ago. So we thought we'd go deep this week on the connections between guns, domestic violence, spousal violence, and mass murder. Because while this case, Rahimi, raises big, big questions about just how far some of the justices are prepared to go in pushing extreme originalism upon the nation, there are also really urgent life and death questions about guns and intimate partner violence that we would like to answer first. In order to do that, we're going to speak to a legend in the gun regulation space, Shannon Watts. Watts, founder of Moms Demand Action, became one of the country's most influential gun safety activists, launching her game-changing group in the days after the 2012 Sandy Hook massacre. In about half of the cases where domestic violence petitions are granted, guns are present, right? And so that makes the threat of injury or death exponentially higher. This past week, the Supreme Court heard two important social media cases testing the First Amendment constraints on public officials who want to block their critics from their personal social media pages, as well as a rather astonishing debate on the question of whether the phrase, quote, Trump too small and the attendant teeny tiny hand gesture that goes with it might be trademarked. Big sigh. Later on in the show, our Slate Plus members are going to get to hear from Jay Willis as he recaps those cases. Maybe the most relatable choice a politician can ever face, which is to just like get rid of a reply guy who is bothering you. Jay has been ably covering Supreme Court oral arguments while our own Mark Joseph Stern is out on paternity leave. That conversation is going to be available only to our Slate Plus members, in addition to having access to bonus segments like my conversation with Jay. Slate Plus members have access to ad-free versions of all of Slate's podcasts. They never hit a paywall at Slate.com, and they support all the journalism that we do here at Amicus and on the magazine. If you'd like to find out more about becoming a member, go to slate.com slash amicus plus. And to our lovely Slate Plusers, thank you, thank you, thank you. But first, United States versus Rahimi. This case raises the question of whether the current Supreme Court conservative supermajority made a catastrophic error in the new gun rights test that it set forth two terms ago in Bruin. But Rahimi also raises this ancillary question of whether America plans to just keep giving guns to every last violent and abusive man who has attacked a domestic partner on the simple theory that domestic violence had no place in originalist thinking. Now, I'm going to do a great big table set here, so I hope you are comfortably situated because the facts in Rahimi are truly horrifying. According to the DOJ filing, three years ago, Zaki Rahimi had an argument with his girlfriend in a parking lot in Texas. Rahimi threatened to take away their child. He allegedly grabbed her wrist, knocked her to the ground, dragged her to the car, and smashed her head on the dashboard. After he realized there was a witness to all this, Rahimi allegedly pulled a gun and fired at a bystander. Then he threatened to kill the girlfriend if she reported this assault. 
a Texas county court issued a protective order barring Rahimi from contacting his former partner or their young son for two years due to these acts of family violence. The court also informed him that possessing a firearm while under the protective order was a federal felony punishable by up to 10 years in prison. That violent scene described by the DOJ in the parking lot That was hardly a one-off, according to the Justice Department, undisputed by his lawyers. In 2020, Rahimi allegedly threatened another woman with another gun. He participated in a series of five subsequent shootings. One such incident involved him, quote, firing into the man's house with an AR-15 rifle. So, you know, just your average good guy with a gun. Under a federal law that dates back to 1994, you can lose your rights to your gun once a federal court has issued a restraining order in a proceeding in which you had the opportunity to appear and make your case. But in reviewing Rahimi's conviction and in the wake of Bruin, a three-judge panel of the Fifth Circuit, yep, it's them again, reversed its original conviction and then struck down the entire law on its face Which means if their view prevails, this federal ban on firearm possession by adjudicated domestic abusers may never be applied to any individual ever, no matter how violent that individual may be or how much due process was afforded by the reviewing court. Now, this all comes courtesy of the new test set forth in 2022's New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, finding that if the government wants to justify any firearm regulation, it, quote, must demonstrate that the regulation is consistent with this nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation, end quote. Since Bruin, courts and legislators are charged with finding, quote, analogous regulations from the time of the framing or at the end of the Civil War. And given that domestic violence protective orders are largely a creature of the last century, using the court's test in Bruin means there are no historical analogs. That means that laws protecting domestic partners from gun violence fall. To help us unpack exactly how disastrous this can be, it is a pleasure, if that can be the descriptor, to welcome Shannon Watts to Amicus. Shannon founded and then served as a full-time volunteer leader of Moms Demand Action for 11 years, stepping back earlier this year. Under her watch, the organization accumulated over 10 million supporters and established a chapter in every state. Their volunteers have stopped the NRA's priority legislation in state houses 90% of the time every year for the past decade, passed over 500 gun safety laws across the country, and elected thousands of gun sense candidates to office. In 2022, Moms Demand helped break through the logjam in Congress to pass the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, the first federal gun safety bill in a generation. The NRA has called Shannon, quote, a hashtag to a hating lobbyist, has accused her of promoting, quote, nearly every gun control measure, and has described her Twitter feed as, quote, a fevered anti-gun stream of consciousness. That is why I'm a fervent follower of her Twitter feed. Shannon Watts, welcome to the show. Thank you. I I hadn't heard all of those um, descriptions from the NRA. I'd love them. I mean, you know, don't take it from me. Take it from the NRA because we know um, yes. always a place of deep truth. Objective good actor. <laughs> I'm I'm so um, thrilled to have you on the show. I 
think most of our listeners have at least some sense of your story, but I would love it if just by way of getting us to your page, uh, can you give us the quick and dirty genesis of Moms Demand Action and maybe what it is that, that led you to do it and how you grew it over the years? Yeah, you know, I was a stay-at-home mom of five in suburban Indiana when the Sandy Hook school shooting happened. And I was taking a break from a career in corporate communications to blend my family with my my new husbands. And I was getting ready to go back to work. And so I can remember I had all this laundry dumped out on my bed and I was folding it and I had the TV on in the background. And suddenly there was breaking news that there was an active shooter in Newtown, Connecticut, inside an elementary school. And just like you, and I'm sure so many people listening, I just stopped what I did, was doing, and I, I sat on the side of the bed, and I watched this horrific, unfathomable tragedy unfold. The 20 children and six educators were slaughtered inside an elementary school. And, you know, my kids just down the street were inside their elementary and their middle and their high schools. And that devastation that I felt when I went to bed that night somehow turned into anger by the time I woke up. And I was so outraged and I thought, okay, I'm going to join something like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, which was so influential to me growing up in the 80s, but but for gun safety. And I went online and I couldn't find anything like that. There were a lot of think tanks run by men. There were a lot of one-off city and state organizations mostly run by men. I wanted to be part of a badass army of women. You know, it's who I'd seen get so much done <laughs> since starting with Prohibition. And so I just started a Facebook page. And it was like lightning in a bottle. It went viral. And within weeks, we weren't online anymore. We were showing up in person. And that was the genesis of Moms to Be in Action, now the largest gun safety organization in the nation. And I really don't want to spend time on this episode, and it's why we wanted you on this episode deconstructing the utter madness of using historical analogs and sort of pouring over 200-year-old gun regulations in order to regulate guns in America today. But I do want to give you an opportunity to talk just about this general principle of what it means to use text and history as the only marker of whether a gun law can today stand or fall, given just the very, I mean, put aside all the other bits of insanity, but given just the fact that we have moved from the 18th century muzzle-loading musket of the framers' dreams to the firearms that you think about every day today? It's absurd, and normal, average people understand it's absurd. We have to evolve as a nation. That means evolving our laws. I mean, even Thomas Jefferson said, laws are like a coat, and when you outgrow it, you have to change those laws. And we've outgrown originalism. Women have more rights. Guns are much more complicated. Society is completely different. And we have to make sure that we're making laws that regulate the guns that we have, the society that we have, now in 2023. And you know, let's be clear, this Fifth Circuit overturning of domestic violence restraining orders essentially is a death sentence for women and for families in this country. You know, gun violence against women is a crisis. And instead of making laws stronger to protect women and families, we are seeing mostly men 
conservative white men overturn the protections that have given us some semblance of comfort so that we've gone to a place where we are just completely vulnerable to to gun violence and to violence in general now in this country. We saw a huge uptick in, um, you know, efforts to strike down gun laws after Heller came down, right? Where suddenly you have a, a right, the Supreme Court says, oh, no, you forget what we said about a well-armed militia. What we meant was for the first time in history, now you have a right to own a gun in your home. But I think people don't fully understand that after Bruin came down a year and a half ago, we saw an absolute sea change in terms of courts overturning, invalidating Tons and tons and tons of gun regulations. I mean, we started this conversation with me lauding the work you've done getting gun laws passed. And in some sense, Bruin, Bruin is the wood chipper, right? Yeah. And I'm just looking at, at at one study that says more than a dozen state and federal laws have been, been invalidated in whole or in part since Bruin came down. 30% of civil cases, 4% of criminal cases cite Bruin as the reason that they invalidate gun control measures. 284 total decisions addressing Second Amendment claims. Uh, this is not a trivial thing that you all are getting gun laws passed democratically, by the way, the, the same women you tried to organize. And then the court just says like, eh, no. And we've really seen on the ground gun control laws being struck down willy nilly because of this insane historical test that is set forth in Bruin. I mean, that's exactly right. So when I started Mobs Demand Action, we began focusing initially on establishing background checks on all gun sales in those states that didn't have them, passing something called the red flag law, which is also useful in domestic violence situations. It just simply allows uh, a family member or a police officer or, in some cases, a, a therapist or even an educator to get a temporary restraining order that removes the guns from someone who appears to be a danger to themselves or others until that can be assessed. And then the third thing is to pass laws that keep guns out of the hands of domestic abusers. Um, there is this federal law, yes, that you mentioned, but also uh, there are state laws and those actually are more effective and, and more influential in most cases. And so in something like 29 states now, we have passed laws that in some way make it harder for domestic abusers to access guns. You know, just going back to the origin of Moms Demand Action, I do think we are the gun lobby's worst nightmare. I do think the idea of women and mothers rising up against them was their greatest fear. And there was a reason for that. We've been incredibly effective. As you said, you know, we've passed 500 good gun laws in the last decade, and we've stopped the NRA's agenda 90% of the time. So how does the NRA, how does the gun industry, how do, you know, there's all these gun lobby groups now. How do they continue to chip away at gun laws and, and continue to saturate our country with more guns that make them more money, they do it by going through the court system. And so, like, the, the, this decision in Bruin, right, this, this extreme threat of Rahimi, it's really the culmination of years of work by the gun industry and the gun lobby. They deployed campaign contributions and, and ad campaigns and these sort of shadowy backdoor legal maneuvers that placed pro-gun judges on federal courts, including the Supreme Court. And so Rahimi is a direct consequence of, of 
what the Supreme Court did, as you mentioned in Bruin. They essentially overturned a more than 100-year-old law and for the first time in American history, limited the rights of states to regulate guns in public. And as you said, that decision has been used now by lower courts, not only to upend domestic violence laws like in this case, but also, you know, in, in bans on assault weapons and in gun safety requirements for, for young adults. So regardless of how this case is decided, the Supreme Court has done huge damage to our ability to protect Americans from gun violence, at least in the short term. We are going to pause now to hear from our sponsors. We're back now to my conversation with Shannon Watts, speaking truth to gun rights extremism. It's so interesting, Shannon. I'm looking at your face and you're talking and I'm thinking of that throwaway line that Justice Alito put not uh, it wasn't in the Bruin opinion, which was written by Clarence Thomas, but it was in the Dobbs opinion, overturning Roe, where he says kind of blithely, oh, women are not without electoral power. Like, stop your complaining, right? <laughs> you just go to the ballot box and fix it. Your last 10 plus years has been dedicated to the proposition that women are not without electoral power. You went to the ballot box and you fixed it. You ran candidates. You passed the laws. You've been unbelievably successful. And then to be short-circuited by the very court that smugly tells you, oh, but you have all the power. What are you complaining about? It's a little crazy. It is. And, you know, when we start doing this work, I think our premise was essentially, let's shine a light. And, and at the time, it was mainly the NRA, right? Let's shine a light on this gun lobbying group and force the cockroaches to run out. And everyone will see how corrupt they are. And it will, we will win, essentially. Because people won't believe this special interest motivated by greed and money and, and violence, because violence begets gun sales, that, that people will be so turned off by that, that we will win. And what we did not account for was that guns would essentially become an organizing principle for the right wing and that the right wing, right, would take hold of the Republican Party um, after Donald Trump's election. And so guns are an organizing principle now. They are a way to get new right wing recruits in the door. They're a way to make money. Um, there's this group in America called the Door Brothers, uh, an actual group of brothers who make millions of dollars by inciting people around gun laws in different states. But it's also a way to excite the base around a whole host of issues that have absolutely nothing to do with guns. So, but I also want to be clear as we talk about this, you know, I'm not hopeless. The people who are listening to this are not helpless. We have made so many strides, but I also think this points out the importance of elections in this country, because a huge part of the reason that we are dealing with these, you know, rogue courts is because of who we've elected to office and because they stand for gun extremism. So I want to talk about Rahimi for a minute, and, and you've been really clear to say Rahimi is emblematic of the problem. Rahimi is not the problem. This case has the potential to make things much, much worse, but they're already pretty grim uh, post-Bruin. But Zaki Rahimi, just from my brief, uh, very truncated uh, description in the intro— 
is pretty much the poster boy for why not every single person who wants to own a gun in a civil society should get to wave one around. And and I think my brief introduction doesn't even do justice uh, to his extracurriculars. There was new reporting this week from the Huffington Post uh, revealing new allegations and charges even beyond what I've outlined. Uh, HuffPo says that he's facing a total of 11 criminal charges in Texas. They found video. Prosecutors say show Rahimi pulling a gun and firing in public in these road rage episodes. All this goes some way to explaining why gun rights groups are, are trying to keep Zaki Rahimi himself at arm's length. This is not their dream plaintiff. But I just want to ask you, as somebody who works in this space, is he really an outlier? I mean, the stuff that you hear about him, it's not that different from, I mean, Shannon, we have very, very good data on the connection between adjudicated domestic abusers and violence against women and lethality of women. And even before we get to that, I just want to say, you mentioned, you know, that states have um, these red flag laws too, but these are civil protective orders. They're not criminal. The standard of proof is lower, yes. Uh, I know that uh, Rahimi's supporters suggest that they get handed out like Christmas candy uh, and that women make up false allegations of domestic abuse all the time. But A, there it's it's really hard for victims of abuse to d- obtain protective orders. And this is hardly uh, an outlier case. Men do this to women all the time. That's absolutely right. In fact, in about half of the cases where domestic violence petitions are granted, guns are present, right? And so that makes the threat of injury or death exponentially higher. And only 21 states right now have laws that force these domestic abusers to relinquish their firearms. 21 states, even though these people are are deemed to be a risk. And we know 70 women are shot and killed by intimate partners, either former or current, um, every single month in this country, right? That is a crisis. And We have watched this play out over the last decade. We make it extremely easy for domestic abusers to get guns. It's important to remember that over two dozen states now have something called permitless carry, thanks to the gun lobby, which means you don't need to undergo a background check or safety training to carry a hidden loaded handgun in public. Right. So if you're a prohibited purchaser in those states, you can still have easy access to guns. Um, and so even without this decision on the Rahimi case, women are incredibly vulnerable to gun violence. And, you know, what's interesting also is once you pass these laws, I mean, this is a system made by men to benefit men. And, you know, we sometimes our court watchers, our volunteers will go into the courts. And what we notice is that even in those states where you are required to surrender your firearms if you are a domestic abuser, um, sometimes the judge, mostly white male judges, will not even check the box to say that he asked the person, you know, the abuser, if they have guns and, and whether they've relinquished them. So the system is designed, it's set up against women, um, ultimately. But, you know, in this case, the, the, Rahimi pled guilty. Even the Fifth Circuit, you know, held up his conviction originally. It was only on appeals that it was overturned, and it was only because of Bruin, of the Bruin decision. And so this is sort of par for the course when it comes to how the gun industry feels about women. You know, I can remember when I first started doing this work, I would see press releases from the NRA that said, 
we don't support disarming domestic abusers because sometimes women lie about abuse. Sometimes they didn't use the word lie, right? It was, it was couched more, um, uh, vaguely than that. But the, the idea was we can't trust women. We can only trust men. And you made the point earlier, and it's so smart, Shannon, that there's this whole bucket of anxieties that are packed into the debate we're having about the Second Amendment. We're having this sort of arcane academic debate about originalism and, you know, what were the statutes on the books. But as you're saying, it's not that. I mean, part of the reason we wanted you here and not a law professor is because inside that bucket of anxieties is all this stuff about women lie and they have all the power in relationships and men don't get sufficient due process and, you know, they need to have their gun in order to feel powerful in the world. And I think what you're doing, and this is the turn I really want to make together with you, is saying that centered nowhere in this discussion, this very dry academic discussion, is the experience of women. And, you know, you've said some of the statistics, but let's just, like, put them out there. Women in the United States are 11 times more likely to be killed with a firearm than women in other high-income countries. Female intimate partners are more likely to be killed with a gun than any other means combined. The presence of a gun, as you said, increases the risk of homicide for women in domestic violence situations by 500 percent. One in four women in the United States has been the victim of severe domestic violence in her lifetime. One in three women in the United States has experienced rape, stalking, or domestic violence. I mean, we can go on and on and on, but this is all the stuff that is invisible when the U.S. Supreme Court looks at a gun regulation, it was the kind of stuff, by the way, that was invisible to the court when it overturned Roe. The real life experience of women and how guns inflect on their safety in this country is the thing that seems to be of no interest to at least the six justice conservative supermajority on the Supreme Court today. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with that. And, and, and in part because, you know, women are not represented. Um, part of the reason I wanted to start Moms Demand Action was because I felt women needed a voice. You know, we're the majority of the voting public. Um, we're the majority of the public. And so when we use our voices and our votes, and we've seen this over and over again, we can sway elections. We can sway public opinion. Uh, I think we're seeing that with abortion, um, after the, the overturning of, of abortion rights in this country. But we represent something like 25% of the 500,000 elected positions in this country. We're only about 5% of Fortune 1000 CEOs. So we aren't making the laws and the policies that protect our families and our communities. A lot of different nonprofit organizations, often you see women doing what I call the unglamorous heavy lifting of grassroots activism, right? They get the spaces and they make the snacks and then men sort of set the spotlight or set the strategy and take the spotlight. And I wanted to create an organization where women do it all soup to nuts. Um, so many of our volunteers have either had loved ones stolen from them because of domestic violence or they themselves are survivors of domestic gun violence. And so who better to be doing this work um, in this country? And we have an election right around the corner. You know, we have elections uh, this year, but also big elections next year. And so the work doesn't stop, right? Just because you lose 
uh, maybe a legislative cycle or the wrong people are appointed to a court. You know, we have to play the long game until there is parity. Um, but I, I do think that Moms Demand Action has been such an important way for women to learn the skills of advocacy. And as you mentioned earlier, in some cases, to take them and to decide, okay, I don't just want to shape policy, but I want to make it. And, and that's why hundreds of our volunteers are now lawmakers. Shannon, there's one other kind of grim turn I want to take before <laughs> we, we, we kind of think through how to unravel this. And that is, I think you've just been so attuned to the ways in which mass shootings are predictable and preventable. Um, you know, like you, <laughs> I raised children who never had, um, you know, a year of school without an active shooter drill, never had a moment where they weren't preparing for, you know, running in zigzags or whatever insanity they were taught because they just took for granted that this is how we parent, this is how we child now in America. I want to give you a chance to discuss one other aspect of this case that, again, seems like it's under the surface but has not really been at the center of the conversation uh, because it has no analog in any other country, and that is these mass shootings. According to the data from every town that I just pulled up, in almost 50% of mass shootings, the perpetrator first shot an intimate partner or family member. This isn't just a domestic violence conversation. This is Sandy Hook, is where, which is where you started. This is Uvalde. This is your kid, wherever you are, their, their next school shooting as well. And again, the connection in data, in science, in research between disarming somebody who is an adjudicated domestic abuser and the thing that I think started you on your path and keeps you up at night as it does me, which is these mass shootings. There's such a correlation that seems utterly uninteresting to the people who are assessing this at the U.S. Supreme Court today. You know, I think we all have this idea that that a mass shooting is some shadowy figure who shows up inside a, a public place like a, a ball and opens fire. And in fact, most mass shootings are instigated by an episode of domestic violence, and they occur in private residences. Many mass shooters have a history of domestic violence, even if the the shooting itself is not instigated by domestic violence. For example, um, there were episodes of domestic and family violence in the backgrounds of the shooters in both Sandy Hook and Uvalde um, and in Sutherland Springs, right? So we, we see this play out over and over again. And, and these mass shootings are increasing in this country. In fact, we recently had one of the deadliest uh, weeks in America in a long time after 18 people were gunned down uh, in Maine, and we're still waiting to to learn more about that gunman's background. Um, but that same weekend, there were 12 mass shootings that left 11 people dead and nearly 100 people wounded. So, you know, as we continue to grieve this loss of life over and over again in this this mass shooting repetition, the Supreme Court is is preparing to make it even easier for dangerous people to to access guns. It's it's insanity. Let's take a short break. More now with Shannon Watts on why gun safety is a democracy problem. So you keep saying, and I'm trying to internalize, <laughs> that all is not lost. And this is the difference between your beat and mine, because I'm, I'm a little bit in the yes. all is lost beat after Bruin. But I think what I'm hearing you say is, look, this was a huge setback, and it is 
eminently correctable at the ballot box, and it really requires paying attention to every local election, to state elections, to every candidate. I mean, this is not a thing that should take us by surprise the way Bruin and Dobbs took us by surprise. We can organize around this and we can prevail. And so I would love to hear just some version of your best, here's what we do if, and and I think it's a huge if, the court takes the risk of pressing further in Rahimi, even than it went in Bruin. If that were to happen, if the court doesn't pump the brakes, but instead really pushes forward on this agenda, what is it that folks... I don't want people to be surprised in June, Shannon. I want them to be prepared in June. And I want you to tell Mm. us what that's going to look like. Well, it's important to note that after the Bruin decision, which was really about New York's um, permitting system and and requirements, that that impacted about six states in total. In the immediate months after that ruling – and those were all blue states, we were able to go into those states and actually tighten the permitting requirements and make the systems more holistic through state law. Because lawmakers in those states where we had built this foundation, where we had built gun sense champions, agreed that the Bruin ruling was dangerous. And every single one of the states impacted by Bruin has since strengthened their permitting systems. So that is the, the good news. I think the more concerning news is, is if you live in a red, red state, that's what we're seeing play out is this polarization where red states are weakening their gun laws and blue states are strengthening them. It's pretty intuitive, but the data shows that when red states weaken their gun laws, there's more gun violence and more gun death. And when blue states strengthen their gun laws, there's less gun violence and less gun death. Again, pretty intuitive. It does come down to, in part, the people that we are electing and making sure that we hold them accountable for strengthening the laws. As I said, we have several election cycles coming up. And we have an opportunity to do that. We will certainly, as an organization, use whatever the court decides as a, as a way to get people to the ballot box on this issue. Um, but look, we have to restore balance and integrity to the courts. We, we need ethics reform, right? But we also, in my opinion, need Supreme Court expansion. You know, if we add more justices, we can rein in this extremism. And it is a, a well-established tradition. Congress has done it multiple times throughout history, and and we may be able to do it again. Certainly not with Republican control of the House of Representatives, but there is growing support for expansion across the country. I think there was a, a new poll out by Marquette Law School that showed about 54% of Americans support the idea. So let's see what happens. Um, there are two schools of thought on Rahimi. One is that The court wanted to hear it because they're gun extremists and they will continue to weaken the gun laws. The other school says they wanted to hear it because they want to clean up the mess they made with Bruin. But obviously, as an organization, we will use the outcome to strengthen the laws in this country at hopefully both a a state and federal level. I think I want you to go back to the place that you started, which is... This decade and more of work that you've been doing to make 
the living and lived consequences of the insanity of the gun lobby and the insanity of the current court visible to people who think that these things just happen. They don't just happen. This is, as you said, years of efforts by the gun lobby, years of efforts to capture the court and put pro-gun jurists on the court. None of this just happened. And you work with people who live with the consequences of that. And I think what I would love to hear from you is... What is the answer to the question? And I think it is the question that justices like Brett Kavanaugh and Chief Justice Roberts are maybe somewhat susceptible to, which is the originalism doesn't provide the last word on this issue of where gun laws come from and who they should protect. And I just want to say again, when guns were being regulated, when the Second Amendment was drafted, when the Reconstruction Amendments were adopted, women were still property. They were the subjects of the men in their household. Even when rape was criminalized under early American law, physical violence was completely sanctioned in the home. And men could use uh, what was called, quote, moderate correction on their wives. That's where the term hilariously rule of thumb comes from. There is so much wrong with using, and you've said this twice now, the original views of men who beat their women, who own slaves, as a marker for how to proceed in a civilized society. So for listeners who feel invisible to the court and who feel that this originalist historical analog test is completely blinkered about what their lived lives are like, what can you tell us? What can you tell us to show to Brett Kavanaugh, to show to Amy Coney Barrett, to show to the Chief Justice, to say that test sweeps in absolutely everything that is wrong about the framing and nothing that is objectively true about how we live today? Well, look, uh, my experience over the last decade is there's nothing more powerful than an army of angry women. (laughs) And when you take our rights away or when you put us in danger, we will rise up. And look, we already know that about 90% of Americans support common sense gun laws. That includes Republicans and Democrats. And what I think is interesting is recent polling that shows swing voters who are women both Republican and Democrats, agree on the same solutions for gun safety. They support gun safety. And I think that this extremism that we're seeing in the legislatures and in the courts, there is backlash, particularly among women. And this extremism is cyclical, right? Eventually, we will come out of it, I believe. And we will have more normalcy. We'll have more what of constituents want. But that doesn't happen unless we all become advocates, unless we all continue to push. I always say that when lawmakers close the door, Moms Demand Action volunteers come in the window. So yes, the courts are doing what the courts are doing right now, and it makes us feel powerless, but we're not. As you mentioned, we passed 500 new gun safety laws. That includes red flag laws and safe storage requirements and background checks. Just last year, you know, we were able to get 3,000 candidates to champion the issue of gun safety in elections. And then last summer, for the first time in a generation, 26 years, we broke through a logjam in Congress and passed the first federal gun safety legislation since Bill Clinton was in an office. So 
This is about channeling the energy of millions of advocates who want to fix our legislatures, who want to fix the court system, who want to elect unsafety candidates and pass new laws. And that is happening. You know, I wouldn't have woken up every day for 11 years as a full-time volunteer if we weren't winning. We absolutely are. There will continue to be roadblocks in the way. We have to play the long game, but there is strength in numbers, and we don't win until every American gets off the sidelines and use their voices and their votes on this issue. You've stepped back a little from Moms Demand, but it seems that your activism and your organizing has pivoted exactly in the ways you just described, which is it's just not going to be enough to win court cases. It's not going to be enough um, to just focus on guns. We have to fix democracy itself. We have to run people for office who look like us and who value us. And that's been your pivot. And I just would love for you to just take a minute to tell us what you're doing now and what you're going to do next, because it feels like this is fundamentally democracy work now. You know, someone called me the summoner of women's audacity. I love that. <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's, that's the dream. I want women to be educated about things that impact them, everything from menopause to uh, gun safety. I want women to get involved and feel empowered to take back their power that they they rightfully deserve and to be involved in the process. Um, I'm on the board also of Emerge America, which is this amazing organization that trains progressive women to run for office. I think a big part of solving the inequities and and the crisis of violence and our rights being removed in this country is for women to have the power to to make these decisions. I mean, the saying is, right, if you don't have a seat at the table, you're probably on the menu. And right now, women are on the menu. And we do have the power to run for office at all levels of government. Um, and, and I want to encourage women to do that. I don't care if it's, uh, you know, county coroner or sheriff or school board. It all matters. It all adds up. Decisions are made at all levels. And I almost think there is a moral imperative at this point for women to consider if they have the, the, the time and the ability to run for office where they live. And, I think that's how so many of our volunteers see it. You know, I, I live in the East Bay in California, and one of my friends who's a Moms Demand Action volunteer just won a, a seat on the school board. It wasn't something she dreamed of. She didn't dream of serving on her school board. And she isn't going to do it for, for more than a term or two, but she felt a moral obligation to make a difference in her community. And I think that's how women should look at service. Shannon Watts founded and then served as a full-time volunteer leader for Moms Demand Action for 11 years. She stepped back this year. Under her watch, this organization accumulated over 10 million supporters, established chapters in every state. It continues to grow and flourish, as does Shannon. So thank you so much for your work. Thank you for your voice. And thanks for being here to preview, I think, one of the most important cases the court's going to hear this term. Thank you so much. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in, and thank you so much for your letters and your questions. You can always keep in touch at amicus at slate.com, or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. 
Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio at Slate. And Ben Richmond is our senior director of operations. We will be back with another episode of Amicus next week. And until then, take good care. Take good care.